from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, and what they mean for us today. We air part one of our interview with Reza Aslan, author of the New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin explores the dangerous intertwining of church and state in the Russian crackdown on the art collective Pussy Riot. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is best-selling author and scholar Dr. Reza Aslan. Dr. Aslan is the founder of Aslan Media, a social media network for news and entertainment about the Middle East and the world, and he's the co-founder and chief executive officer of BoomGen Studios, which provides creative content from and about the greater Middle East. Aslan's first book is the international bestseller No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages, and it was named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. Aslan is professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside, and he serves on the board of trustees of the Chicago Theological Seminary, His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Dr. Reza Aslan, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the program. Well, we could make a long list. We could start with Remaris and E.P. Sanders and Albert Schweitzer and Marcus Borg and the entire Jesus seminar, and I'm just scratching the surface here. You sure are. And so the, the question that I would start off with is, your new book, Zealot, talks about the life and times of Jesus and of Nazareth. Why take the time to write another book about the life of Jesus? What was it that drew you to this project? Well, you're absolutely right in that the so-called quest for the historical Jesus is two centuries old. Um, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of academic tomes trying to uh, dig through the layer upon layer of interpretation and myth, of legend, of doctrine and dogma that have accumulated over the person of Jesus for the last 2,000 years and try to get to the man himself, which of course is an incredibly difficult thing to do, which is why so many people have tried to do it. And it's certainly true that at this point there is very little new to say about the historical Jesus, certainly nothing that hasn't already been said before. But my book is not an attempt to blaze new ground by any means. My book is an attempt to distill that two centuries of academic debate and discussion into something that is approachable, readable, enjoyable, accessible to a broad general audience. That's the kind of academic that I have always been. All of my books, from No God But God to How to Win a Cosmic War and to Zealot, have been an attempt to translate, if you will, uh, these academic arguments that scholars have had for centuries in their dusty libraries uh, into a format that can be enjoyed by a broader audience. And I think that's why 
this book has been such a success because this is a conversation that I think people are quite interested in, but it's one that they have been uh, excluded from for a very, very long time. Well, in the process of this distillation, you single out one history of Jesus in particular for praise, and that's John P. Meyer's four-volume work, A Marginal Jew, Rethinking the Historical Jesus. And you write that you consider this project of Meyer's to be definitive. That's your word. And so I want to ask you a delicate question, because I believe that Meyer was also your teacher, and I know that you hold his work in high regard, but could you summarize for us where you think Meyer didn't fully accomplish the task, where where he needed to go further and think deeper? Father Meyer, of course, is somebody that I do respect enormously. In many ways, he introduced me to the historical Jesus. I was a first-year undergraduate student when I first had the opportunity to hear from him and read the first volume of his magisterial work, A Marginal Jew. Now, that should give you a sense right there, first volume, because he has already published the fifth volume, and I'm pretty sure that he's not even halfway done yet. Um, So, in many ways, that explains clearly what I mean, because while Father Meyer is a wonderful writer, and while I believe that his writing is truly accessible, uh, he has already written about 7,000 pages on the subject and has maybe five or 6,000 pages to go. Um, now, I should also say that I don't agree with every one of Father Meyer's uh, conclusions. Um, certainly, we disagree on a number of issues, but what's remarkable about Father Meyer's work is that he has done a marvelous job of taking essentially all of the various opinions that have existed on almost every single matter, almost every single event, every single word that Jesus has ever uh, been it's been said that Jesus has said, uh, and has approached it from multiple angles, given more or less what the history of thought behind uh, the various interpretations and and, uh, conclusions about uh, Jesus' sayings and actions, uh, almost in an encyclopedic way. But again, I would venture to say that that is a kind of text that is not one that the average reader uh, would pick up. Uh, It's one that is mostly geared for the specialist, like myself, Uh, whereas my text is uh, an attempt to really uh, break through, if you will, the ivory tower and encourage everyone else to be involved in this conversation. This, again, as I say, is, is just how I've always thought, how I've always worked. I study the history of religions because I find it to be absolutely fascinating, and I just assume that other people would find it fascinating, too, if they were only welcomed to the discussion. Well, in, in that answer, and I appreciate you taking a moment to speak about that, I, see, I hear very clearly that you're saying um, that, that Father Meyer has written a particular type of scholarly work and that your intention is to write a different type of scholarly work. And that raises for me this issue of the specialist versus the layperson. And uh, having, having gone to school and studied religion myself, uh, I've, I've wrestled with this because the Bible in many ways is presented in our culture as a user-friendly document. 
But as soon mm-hmm. as you as soon as you start to dive into it, you realize that there are translational problems, there are conundrums of meaning, there are cultural things that don't necessarily shift well from two centuries, uh, two two millennia ago to to the present day. And so I wonder, how do you make this distinction? Is is the Bible something that you have to go to school in order to understand, or is it really a book that that it it can just be opened and read uh, by a layperson with really little preparation at all? Where would you fall on that question? The Bible, like all scriptures, regardless of what your scripture you're talking about, whether it's the Quran or the Rig Veda or the Gathas, whatever the case may be, um, really functions in multiple levels. Of course. It is, in many ways, an attempt for a, a, any kind of contemporaneous community to find a, a, a moral compass, if you will. Uh, it, it, there is a, an attempt by every generation, every uh, interpreter, indeed, who uh, confronts these scriptures to extract whatever meaning one needs from the text. This, of course, as you well know, is a very important thing to keep in mind with Scripture. I think that most people believe that individuals receive their morality uh, or their moral judgments from Scripture, when in reality the fact is is that individuals bring their morality and their moral judgments to the Scriptures, which is precisely why the Scriptures have been interpreted and understood in such a, a diverse array uh, of, of meanings, why sometimes people will even look at the very same verse of Scripture and come away with not just different interpretations, but diametrically opposed interpretations. I often remind people that in our own history in the United States, you know, a little more than two centuries ago, not only did slave owners and abolitionists use the same Bible to argue their viewpoints, they often use the exact same verses. To, view, to argue their viewpoints. That is the power of Scripture um, as, uh, as it is confronted by a worshiper. But the Scripture is also a historical, contextual uh, uh, element. I mean, there, there is a, a literary quality to it. Uh, you can uh, use uh, critical analysis to figure out its dating, its multiple meanings, the context out of which it arose. And that is truly the the difference between what in academia is referred to as exegesis and hermeneutics. I am not interested in hermeneutics. I'm not a theologian, and and I'm not interested in uh, developing multiple mystical interpretations of scriptures. Uh, I'm interested in exegesis. I'm interested in the historical context out of which scriptures arose, the, the multiple ways in which they have been uh, developed and, and, and have evolved throughout uh, history, and, and certainly depending on, on the culture and the civilizations that encounter the scriptures. And so if you are interested in that kind of experience of the scriptures, then yes, I'm afraid it does require um, some instruction. It does require someone to, if you will, walk you through the methodological steps necessary uh, to make that kind of sense uh, out of it. But if you are approaching scripture from a position of worship, then certainly that is not necessary. But again, it's very important to understand that there are two distinct ways of confronting Scripture, regardless of what the Scripture is. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to internationally best-selling author Reza Aslan. 
We're discussing his recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the broader context that led him to write the book. Well, I'm the father of, of two small children, and my daughter uh, goes to a, a Catholic school. And as we walk in in the mornings, we, we pass by the the statue of Jesus, and Jesus is there holding his hands outstretched, and on his hands are the marks of the nails. And my daughter has now begun asking me almost on a, on a morning-by-morning basis, Papa, why did they kill Jesus? Why did they kill Jesus? And one of the points that you make in your book, Zealot, that I found particularly revelatory, and by the way, I never know quite how to answer the question for my five-year-old, <laughs> but one of the things that I found revelatory was the observation about the sign that was nailed above Jesus' head mm-hmm. at the time of his crucifixion that said, King of the Jews. Now, I had always heard this described as a mockery, but in your book, you seem to take a different view, and your argument is that this sign was not placed ironically but it actually points to the motivation for killing Jesus in the first place from a historical standpoint. I wonder, could you explain? Yes, yes. Well, as I often say, the Romans were known for a lot of things, but humor was not one of them. Um, the sign above Jesus' head is called the titulus. And I think first and foremost, going back to your daughter's very astute question, is that you have to define they before you de- you answer the question. Because they didn't kill Jesus, the Romans killed Jesus. And that's the, the most important puzzle piece, if you will, in trying to understand the crucifixion. Crucifixion, of course, was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for crimes against the state. Crimes like sedition, treason, insurrection, rebellion. These were the only crimes for which one could be crucified under Roman law. Now, of course, people will often say, but what about the thieves that were crucified alongside Jesus? Of course, those were not thieves. The Greek word that the Gospels use to describe them, lestai, does not mean thieves. I suppose it can mean thieves, but klepti means thieves. Lestai means bandits, and bandit was the most common term in Jesus' time for an insurrectionist, for a rebel. So in other words, when you see that great iconic image of uh, Jesus being crucified alongside two men, what you are seeing is not an innocent man being crucified alongside two thieves. You are seeing three bandits being crucified at once. And indeed, Jesus on more than one occasion in the Gospels is referred to as lestis or bandit. And so if the crucifixion is a punishment for sedition against the state, then that really changes the way that we think about the reasons for Jesus' death, and perhaps even it should color the way that we even interpret the actions that led to the crucifixion in the first place. Now, one thing that's very important to understand, going back to that sign above Jesus' head, the so-called titulus, crucifixion was not primarily a means of capital punishment. I know that that sounds very strange to say, but the purpose of crucifixion wasn't to kill the criminal. In fact, it was often the case that Rome would kill the criminal first, then crucify him. The purpose of crucifixion was to act as a deterrent against rebellion or insurrection, which is why crucifixions were always done in the most public of places, in marketplaces, uh, at the entrance to cities. Indeed, Golgotha, where Jesus was said to be crucified, was a hill that was right at the the main entrance to Jerusalem, making it impossible 
for anyone to enter the city without first walking by hundreds of dead and dying criminals hanging on crosses for the crime of defying the will of Rome. And each one of those criminals had prominently displayed somewhere on their cross the titulus, which laid out the crime for which they were being executed. Uh, and in course, in Jesus's case, the crime was striving for kingly rule or or treason, sedition. This is an enormously important fact. In fact, I often say to people that if you know nothing else about Jesus except that he was crucified, you know enough to at the very least begin to question the very dominant image of him as a kind of pacifistic preacher of good works with no concern for the cares of this world. Frankly, that Jesus would have gone completely unnoticed by Rome. But if Rome thinks that you are enough of a threat to the very stability of the empire, that they go through the trouble of hunting you down, arresting you, torturing you, and nailing you to a cross for sedition, then you may have been a bit of a rabble-rouser. You may have been a bit of a troublemaker. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind when going back and looking at the rest of the gospel story that precedes the crucifixion. Well, and I appreciate you you speaking at length about the politics that surround this this central act in the Gospels that is seen in so many different facets by the Christian faith. So clearly there's a politics to the way a community reads its holy scriptures. And I, I wonder, given that there is this politics to reading, do you see your own work as a scholar as a political act or you know, are you caught up in the fray, or is is your turn to the historical, is that in some way for you an attempt to rise above the fray of politics and stand outside of politics? You know, in the uh, beginning of the book, I, I quote the great uh, biblical historian Rudolf Bultmann, who once famously said that the problem with the historical Jesus study is that the scholar, when looking at the Jesus of history, often just sees a reflection of himself. And that is certainly true. I do everything in my power to divorce myself from any kind of ideological or political uh, you know, uh, agenda in trying to recreate the uh, biography of the historical man known as Jesus of Nazareth. But I am no fool. I also recognize that there is absolutely no such thing as objectivity, uh, period, whether you're talking about history or scholarship or journalism for that matter. And so it is absolutely true that I am affected by the world that I live in, the experiences that I've had, the education that I have undergone. I often uh, quite proudly uh, talk about the fact that I was introduced to the historical Jesus at a Jesuit university, Santa Clara University in Northern California. And the Jesuits, as you may well know, are quite famous for, well, for being troublemakers, first of all, but also for their absolute focus on social justice and Jesus's preferential option for the poor. I would say that that is why so many people are so infatuated with the current pope, Pope Francis, the very first Jesuit pope that we have ever had. And in many ways, I, I freely admit that that instruction uh, has affected the way that I look at the historical Jesus. Now, I would say with a fair measure of confidence that 
the Jesus who does have a preferential option for the poor, the Jesus who is preaching on behalf of the weak and the marginalized and the dispossessed, the Jesus whose revolutionary message was geared very much to the empowerment of the powerless, is also historically accurate. Uh, But I recognize and fully admit that I have been influenced by my professors, by uh, my life, by my history, by my activities, by my own sense of the world, and even by my own politics. There's no question about that. Any scholar who tells you otherwise is lying, frankly. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with author and scholar Reza Aslan. His most recent book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, is a New York Times bestseller. You're listening to Things Not Seen. Well, Dr. Oslin, would you be willing to speak a little bit about your own religious background? Do you profess a faith currently? Did you grow up in a faith? I grew up as the product of what I like to sometimes joke as a a long line of lukewarm Muslims and exuberant atheists. Um, My mother was the lukewarm Muslim, my father the exuberant atheist. I didn't really grow up in any kind of... religious environment or with any kind of religious instruction. I I was born, I should say, uh, for your listeners, that I was born in Iran and and lived there until 1979 when the Iranian Revolution forced us from our home and we settled in the United States. And growing up in California in the 1980s at a time in which, you know, wasn't exactly the easiest thing in the world to be uh, a Muslim or an Iranian, really uh, encouraged me to divorce myself as much as possible from my heritage, from my culture from my religion, certainly, um, even though, as I say, we were not very a very religious family. I frankly do not have a single memory of ever going to a mosque as a young boy. I had always been deeply interested in religion, however. I think partly this was a result of the childhood images uh, of revolutionary Iran that had seared themselves in my consciousness. Uh, I felt deeply the power that religion has to transform a society for good and for bad, and it created in me a lifelong interest in religion and spirituality, though as I say, I never really had an opportunity to express that in any kind of meaningful way in my life or in my family. When I was in high school, I went with some friends to an evangelical youth camp in Northern California, and it was there that I first heard the gospel story, and it was a profound experience for me. It was absolutely transformative. I I immediately converted to this particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity and then decided that that was going to spend my life um, studying the New Testament. Um, Now, of course, I had a a bit of a rude awakening when I entered university and began to study the scriptures in an academic environment rather than uh, in the environment of my conservative evangelical fundamentalist church. And it was then that I discovered that almost everything that I knew or thought I knew about Jesus was incorrect, and that there was this chasm, if you will, between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And I suppose the easiest way to put it is that I just became more interested in the Jesus of history, the the Jewish revolutionary peasant who lived 2,000 years ago in the Galilee was more approachable to me, more appealing to me than the celestial Christ that I had been introduced to in church. And although I eventually left the church altogether, I dove headfirst into understanding as much as I possibly could about the historical Jesus to 
And, and I should say also that the more I did, despite the fact that I was no longer a Christian, the more I learned about Jesus, the more uh, of a dedicated follower of his I became, the more I wanted to craft my life and my behavior based on the example of uh, the, the, the Jewish peasant who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, uh, much more so than I ever did uh, the celestial Christ as a Christian. Though, of course, at the same time that I was continuing my studies, I was still deeply desirous of a spiritual connection. And when I graduated from university, it was it was my professors, uh, including the Jesuits at Santa Clara, who, sensing this vacuum in me, uh, encouraged me to learn more about the faith uh, and history of my forefathers. I knew nothing about Islam, uh, despite the fact that I had grown up in a Muslim community and in a Muslim household. Uh, they gave me some books to read, including the Quran. And what I discovered in in Islamic history, and particularly within the Sufi tradition, which is a tradition that I'm I'm most adhered to, was a sort of a set of symbols and metaphors that described a, a belief that I already had. And I think this is very important, again, for your listeners, because it's not the case that in discovering this religion, it told me what to believe. It's that I already believed certain things and discovered within this religion a language of symbols and metaphors that gave shape to those beliefs. Uh, and so... It, that I often say that I had a emotional conversion to Christianity and an intellectual conversion to Islam. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Reza Aslan. Aslan's first book is the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origin, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. This is one of several episodes we've produced for Things Not Seen, dealing with the relationship of the Bible to historical studies. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about Reza Aslan and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That is unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is professor and author Reza Aslan. Aslan's first book is the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam, which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He's also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. 
His most recent book is the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. You can find out more about Reza Aslan's work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. I appreciate so much your willingness to to walk us through that journey. And I, now these ways that you've described yourself, you you grew up sort of in a lukewarm Muslim household. You, you had, after university, a return to Islam, largely at the behest of your Christian professors, which I find fascinating. You also... <laughs> yes. Well, if you, know, if you know anything about the Jesuits, you know that that's not that odd. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also like very much this phrase, a dedicated follower of the Jewish peasant Jesus. And all of that makes me then ask the question, these faith commitments, how do these faith commitments affect your approach to scholarship now, or do they even enter the matter at all? They don't enter the matter at all. Um, you know, I, I think that for um, outsiders, non, non-specialists non in this field, and particularly for religious people, for faith communities, it's very difficult for them to understand how religion can be an academic discipline, how it is actually a scientific enterprise that the cultural and literary and historical influences that shape an institution, the anthropological and sociological work necessary to understand uh, the, the origins of a religious tradition, indeed the very origins of religious experience, that these are scientific pursuits that are not that often affected by people of faith. Now, I will say that it's just one of these uncomfortable truths about the study of religion that most of my colleagues don't really take faith all that seriously to begin with. Many of them perhaps began from a faith tradition, but very quickly uh, through their studies abandoned that faith tradition. That, by the way, is a common experience, and it's an understandable one. I mean, listen— the first thing that you realize when you study the religions of the world is that they are all saying the exact same thing, and that oftentimes they're using the exact same myths and metaphors to say the exact same thing. And so why bother taking any one of them all that seriously? The uh, departments of religion in, in universities around the world are littered with atheists and secularists who have abandoned their faith tradition uh, as they have become more expert in in the study of religion. I am not one of those. I take faith very seriously. I myself am a person of faith, though I am also a scientist and an academic and, and uh, someone who who studies religion from a scientific and historical viewpoint. But I also think it's important that for me, at the very least, I make a very clear distinction between religion and faith. These are not the same thing. Faith is ineffable. It's indescribable. It's deeply individualistic and personal. If you believe in God, then what you believe in is something that is so beyond the human capacity to understand or fathom that uh, you need a, a language. You need a set of symbols and metaphors to help you express what is fundamentally inexpressible, not just to other people, but to yourself. And that is what religion provides, and it's the only thing that religion provides. In other words, I do not believe in religion. My faith is not in any religion. My faith 
is in God, and God is beyond any kind of man-made institutionalized religious tradition. My faith is not in any kind of scripture. Scripture, to me, is certainly divinely inspired. I believe that the Quran is divinely inspired. I believe that the Gospels are divinely inspired. I should also say that I believe Abbey Road is divinely inspired. Uh, I believe in a God that is in constant um, self-communication with his creation. And I don't in any way uh, uh, think that any particular scripture has an exclusive uh, control over that communication. Um, so for me, my faith is not in any prophet. It's not in any religion. It's not in any scripture. Uh, my faith is in God, and God is uh, immutable. He is not affected by any kind of historical uh, or exegetical uh, investigation into a religion. And by the way, I would say that that's true for uh, many people in my in my field, uh, as I say, I mean, a great many of us have abandoned anything that approaches faith. But, but I, you know, we're a field of Hindus who study uh, Buddhism and Buddhists who study Islam and Muslims who study Christianity and Christians who study Judaism and Jews who study Hinduism. That is just the field that I live in, and the majority uh, of my colleagues would say without hesitance that there is really no conflict between their faith or communal traditions and the academic work that they do. Well, Dr. Reza Aslan, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Our guest today has been best-selling author and scholar Dr. Reza Aslan. Dr. Aslan's first book was the international bestseller, No God But God, The Origins, Evolution, and Future of Islam which has been translated into 17 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. He is also the author of How to Win a Cosmic War, which was published in paperback as Beyond Fundamentalism, Confronting Religious Extremism in a Globalized Age. Dr. Aslan is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of California, Riverside, and serves on the Board of Trustees for the Chicago Theological Seminary. His most recent book, which we discussed today, is the number one New York bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part one of our interview with Reza Aslan, and this is one of several episodes that we've produced for Things Not Seen, dealing with the Bible and history. You can find links to all those shows, as well as more information about Reza Aslan and his work, at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you'd like to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dolt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, we hear from Katie Scroggin about the dangers that come from using state power to enforce religious orthodoxy, seen through the eyes of the women's art collective, Pussy Riot. We'll be back in a moment.
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Over the past few months, we've seen the question of the protection of religious freedom take front and center in American media. Over the summer, the Supreme Court rendered a highly controversial ruling in the Burwell v. Hobby Lobby case, creating a new landscape of religious protections for closely held corporations that caught commentators by surprise. Are First Amendment protections, balancing religious practice protections against protections for free speech and the right of assembly, are peculiar to American governance. Not every nation sets the balance as carefully as we do. We see this clearly in the unfolding case of the Russian feminist performance art collective Pussy Riot, whose members faced severe sentences and harsh imprisonment for a less-than-two-minute disruption in a Moscow church. Katie Scroggin offers this report. By now, the world has at least heard of the Russian feminist punk collective known as Pussy Riot and has witnessed the release from prison of its last two members to have been jailed, Nadia Tolokonikova and Masha Alyokina. Even though the results of that particular trial are no longer making headlines, the documentary Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer, acts not only as a source of background material on the group and the case against three of its members, it also presents a moving account of the struggle for personal freedoms in an atmosphere that seems increasingly unwilling to acknowledge or grant them. And although this particular case is closed, the documentary continues to provide audiences, wherever they are, evidence of what can ensue when church and state develop too close a relationship with each other. The film, directed by Mike Lerner and Maxim Pozdorovkin, takes us through the history of the case against Pussy Riot by presenting viewers with the context in which the group emerged. Such a framework includes a focus on the individual biographies of the three members, the aforementioned Nadia and Masha, along with fellow Pussy Riot member Katya Samitsevich, all of whom were arrested for and convicted of hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. Part of the women's individual stories includes interviews with their family, and the additional account of the group's history offers us glimpses into not only the collective's other performances and actions, but also into some of the rehearsals leading up to their 2012 performance in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow, the program that resulted in their arrest, trial, and conviction. That performance consisted of an under-one-minute demonstration in the largely empty cathedral. No services were taking place while five members of the group jumped and danced in front of the altar before being escorted out. Footage from that demonstration in February was mixed with clips from a different location to produce a video for their song Punk Prayer, Mother of God, Drive Putin Away, in which the women asked the Virgin Mary to become a feminist and to get rid of Putin. The film also features interviews with individuals and groups opposed to the women's actions, including not only one-on-one -on -one conversations with Russian Orthodox believers, but also television clips of President Putin and of Russian news programs and talk shows. As the documentary expands its coverage to include more than the personal lives and stories of the three jailed members of Pussy Riot, it becomes evident that this film and the case it covers make up more than just a single story of a persecuted art collective. Packed into an account of one particular affair is a larger narrative about what happens when church, state, and nation become so intensely intertwined 
and end up almost officially depending on each other for their respective identities. Part of that mutual identification, at least in this instance, gives evidence of how, in the case of Christianity, the religion's central principle of love for one's neighbor may be one of the first things set aside when faced with nonconformist thinking and when assured of the backing of the state. Comments and threats directed at Pussy Riot by Orthodox protesters, media figures, and government officials seem to bear no relation to the religious principles they so adamantly claim are essential to their heritage and well-being. Admittedly, those who stand in opposition to the punk collective and who make the threats and comments heard in the documentary do not represent the entirety of any side involved in the conflict, and the film's inclusion of footage of and interviews with supporters, both from within Russia and around the globe, makes it clear that the case was never a black-and-white one of the citizens versus Pussy Riot. Additionally, the attitudes and actions that emerge from out of this specific mix of religion and government are, of course, influenced by unique histories and traditions. But the circumstances of the case should nevertheless make us think closely about the conditions and situations that emerge out of our own often unconscious assumptions about the ways in which society is or should be ordered. For example, convictions about the place of religion in public life and governance may result, as we are now seeing in the U.S., in laws that allow businesses or individuals to discriminate against those who act in ways contrary to their own personal beliefs. They may also give rise to assertions about who counts as a true citizen, who belongs or who should be banished from the circle of those able to participate fully in the country's social and political life. The tremendous value and timeliness of this documentary are not at all lessened by the fact that we already know Nadia and Masha were granted an amnesty and released from prison in December 2013. Nor is its impact lessened by the women's live appearances across the globe, in which they speak about their experiences in spite of continuing to be targets of harassment and threats. And even though it will probably be a long while before protest movements such as Pussy Riot will be accepted or understood in Putin's Russia, the harsh reactions to such efforts prove that campaigns like this art collective's are forcing some questions onto an administration and a large percentage of a church and society that would rather not consider what role they play in the injustices the group is pointing out. We owe it to the courage of activists such as Pussy Riot to ponder what our own contributions are to the development of a society or public sphere unwilling to ask tough questions of itself and to consider where such unwillingness leads. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer here on the show. She reviewed the documentary Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer for Freedom. If you're in the Chicago area, I want to let you know about a documentary we've just gotten done producing. It's an hour-long look at the way current U.S. immigration law is impacting husbands, wives, and children here in Chicago and across the nation. The name of the show is Divided Families Responding with Faith, and it's airing on WTTW, the PBS affiliate here in Chicago, at 9 p.m. on Thursday, October 16th. If you want to find out more, you can go to the website for the show, csec.org slash divided families. Finally, we're happy to remind you that we're now being distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, though we're still figuring out exactly what that means in terms of how you hear us. When we know, you'll know. And as always, thank you for listening. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. 
Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and Katie Scroggin did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.